Well, last weekend on this program, we were talking about the series of tweets put out by Maxime Bernier and the reaction to them. This week, certainly the focus has shifted to Maxime Bernier quitting the Conservative Party, saying he wants to start his own. Elise Mills is joining me on the line now, Conservative strategist, also a senior associate with Sussex Strategy. Elise, great to have you on the program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us because there's still a lot to to, uh, look at with this story. First off, what's your response to uh, Maxime Bernier quitting the party? Um, You know, I I, I was shocked that he decided to do that. Um, But when I started to look back at to, you know, where where Max has been since the leadership, there have been blips along the way where he has not he's demonstrated a lack of support for the leader. And he has demonstrated that his ambition uh, to have his his point of view out there beyond what we, you know, what is good for the party, what is good for, uh, what we believe is good for Canada, uh, you know, it, he's, he's put it out there. And I think that, quite frankly, this might be the best move. I think it's actually worked out really well for the party and for Andrew Scheer in the sense that it's unshackled us from having to babysit uh, a member of parliament who really didn't even want to be there. Um, and I think also Mr. Bernier has demonstrated that uh, he's in this for himself, and which, which surprised me in the sense that he did not choose to go to provincial politics in Quebec, because as you probably know, the writ has been dropped in Quebec, and uh, uh, I know that he has close alliances with the CAC, which is the uh, center-right party there, and I thought that that might have been a great alternative and an opportunity for him to have his own pulpit. Uh, what do you think about the response so far, though, from from other conservatives in that, unless I've missed it, I haven't seen en- any big name or influential conservative members go with him? No, no there there is no movement to go with Max Bernier. Um, and I think that, uh, I don't think he was the leader of the libertarians the way that maybe some in the media and in the in, in the political world believe he was. He had shifted away from some of the libertarian or free market ideas that someone like myself in the conservative movement would traditionally support. And then when he began to move into what I feel is social conservative policy, uh, that isn't my type of conservatism. It's not something that generally floats with the majority, the vast majority of conservatives. And uh, he had he's spending less time on the economic and fiscal policies that traditional conservatives will rally behind. So, you know, he says one thing and he does another. I'll give you an example. Uh, he he never impeded the process of of the of Quebec lobbying for more additional funding, whether it was with Bombardier or with the with Quebec itself. Yet he skewered every other province or every other corporation who who had received a subsidy or additional money. So that's not libertarian. That's Quebec centric, and it's uh, and he's working for his best interest. So um, so it really it, it concerns me that the media tag him as a libertarian and as a libertarian leader within the conservative movement, suggesting that others that feel as I do would have gone with him. And that's just simply not true. And setting up a a new political party, and certainly with the time frame that he now faces, is a lot of work. That is a big task. Do you think that's something that's even doable for him? 
Well, you know, I, for any of us that have been working with coalitions like myself, uh, as you know, I've been with the BC Liberals since 1991, and we, we've gone, we, we went from being connected to the federal Liberal Party and then breaking when Gordon Campbell became leader into being more of a SoCred party and move and broke away from the federal party. Now people say, well, you know, you still have the party then, but there was a lot of uh, uh, stuff that had to be done on the technical side. Then, of course, you know, the Saskatchewan party I've worked with, they're a coalition. And then, of course, the big one would be when the Conservative Party merged with the, with the Canadian Alliance or the Reform Party. And there is a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. It takes decades to be able to make inroads uh, nationally. People that were part of the Reform Party, which I wasn't, but people that were part of the Reform Party would remember what it was like to grow that and how long it took to get to where they ended up getting to. So, you know, Mr. Bernier also is... is, is I, I don't think he truly understands that the position that he had with the Conservative Party and that success that he had really stemmed from being part of a group, being part of an organization. And you get a tremendous amount of support, whether it's on the administrative side, the legal side, and the political organization side. I think, you know, honestly, quite frankly, Jill, in six weeks to six months, we're probably not going to be talking about Mr. Bernie and this idea of another party. Well, and that was, and you've used a, an even smaller timeline that I was thinking. I was going to say even a year from now, is, is the question going to be Max who? Yes, I, I think it is. And I think he's overreached what he thinks his brand and his political capital is. And he's, and one of the other things that your listeners should know is that since the leadership, he further entrenched himself in Quebec. His, his advisors right now are Quebec-based. They're not national organizers. They're not national advisors in, in sort of the, the way that we would see that uh, if you were going to build a new party that you would need. And I think, of course, you know, part of the problem uh, with Mr. Bernie is that he's stepping out. His first steps out towards whatever new party or whatever he's trying to do are based upon anger, envy, and fear. You're not going to build anything based upon those three feelings. Uh, he, I'm not even sure what his issues are. So, you know, and the other part of this is Mr. Bernier chose not to work within the party. I, I want to say that Mr. Scheer did everything that he could uh, since leadership to remind Mr. Bernier that he was an important part of caucus, that he was wanted, that he was needed, and what could he participate, what did he want to participate in? Any of the issues that he's brought up in the last six months or the last four months specifically, he never brought forward in caucus. This is not something he championed uh, within with his colleagues or with his leader. So I think we're all kind of scratching our heads. And I think it's becoming pretty clear at this point that this is something that that is very personal to Mr. Bernier. It's rooted in the loss of the leadership and probably not much else. Uh, what about concerns about his popularity in Quebec and uh, at the next federal election, if that support goes to him or if it does uh, kind of fracture support uh, of conservatives? Well, I would say since uh, since. I would say 2011, the 2011 uh, campaign where we where the Conservatives won their biggest majority, we have made huge strides and in inroads into Quebec. Um, you know, this is a party that nationally in the first three months of this year raised $6 million. The total right now is, I think, is $12.2 million, far surpassing the NDP and, of course, the Liberals. Um, a lot of our support, uh, we've grown a ton of support in Quebec. We've just won a by-election there, hands down. 
down, uh, defeating the Liberal candidate. So, you know, I, I think, Mr. Bernie, it, in politics, it's very easy when you're an MP or a minister. You have a lot of people around you wanting to help you and support you, whispering in your ear how great you are. Uh, I think Mr. Bernie is going to find it a much lonelier and more barren existence than, than maybe he originally thought. And I think with Quebec, Quebecers uh, don't have that appetite for that type of um, separatist, uh, extreme right movement that, say, we saw within the early days of the bloc. I mean, he's, it, it's, it's concerning to me that he's gone 27 years into history backwards to try and find a solution to his problems today. But again, I think his main problem is that he didn't win the leadership. And that's certainly what it appears like, that since that time, since he didn't win, it's, it's been a different tactic. It's not been somebody who wants to then work within the party. Well, yeah, I think everybody that's worked with Mr. Bernier at one point or another, or another, uh, even prior to the leadership, knows a few things about Mr. Bernier. He requires a, a, a all hands on deck to get his job done. He's not always the most briefed guy in the room. Um, he's, he's, and I, I had to laugh when he was talking about going to Elections Canada to form a new party. I, I think I even tweeted, does Max know how much paperwork is involved? Because he was notoriously uh, unreliable on the simple things like paperwork. But, uh, you know, I don't want to bash him uh, personally, but it's hard not to when he's made sure to, to destroy the, the hope and the hearts and the will of those who had spent weekends and given tons of personal time to him and their money uh, to support him in, in a decade plus. Uh, of, of his time in the Conservative Party, when he turned and and he didn't just attack the leader, he attacked every single person that's worked in his riding, every single person across the country that's ever uh, taken time out of their busy schedule to sit down and speak with him or help him out. And when he told those people they were morally bankrupt, uh, that was I, I washed my hands of Mr. Bernie at that moment. I don't think you know, that he's going to be the successful guy in Quebec that he thinks he's going to be. And even if he has a remote level of success there, how is he going to leverage that across the country? We've done this Quebec versus Canada thing, and it doesn't work out. And Quebecers are exhausted by it. Canadians are exhausted by it. Nobody has any will to want to go back and fracture the country again. And if that's what Mr. Bernie is thinking he can do, well, I wish him all the best of luck. But there's many, many people lining up to stop him from doing that. All right, Elise, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks again so much for coming on the program. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. All right, you too. Well, you likely remember when the speculation tax was announced. It was in the last provincial budget back in February, and the tax itself would apply, will apply, if passed, to homeowners in six regional districts or municipalities in B.C., and it targets people who don't live in a property or don't rent it out long term. And property owners taxed at 0.5% of the assessed value for 2018. That increases to 2% of the assessed value in 2019 for foreign investors or so-called satellite families, 1% for Canadian citizens and permanent residents who don't live in B.C., 0.5% for BC residents who are citizens. It can get a little confusing. And there are some pushing back at this saying, wait a minute, before we move forward with this particular tax, maybe there are other options we should be looking at. Joining me on the line to talk more about this is the mayor of Oak Bay. Uh, Nils Jensen is with us. Thank you so much for being here this morning. 
Well, good morning, uh, Jill, and it's a beautiful day in Oak Bay. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what are your concerns about uh, the speculation tax the way it is right now? Well, it's a, it's a rather blunt instrument that uh, is, uh, is applied to the districts that you mentioned, Metro Vancouver and uh, Metro Victoria, also the Cologne area and a few other little areas. And it really doesn't take into account local conditions uh, and the local communities and the needs of local communities. And, and that's one of the reasons that Oak Bay had decided to put forward a uh, resolution to the Union of British Columbia Municipalities. This is a group of uh, uh, municipalities and regional districts that represents all mayors and all councillors right across all local governments right across British Columbia. And we meet annually. Uh, this year we're meeting a little early in September. Uh, and what we want to ask the, the gathered uh, convention is uh, to approve a resolution we brought forward, which we believe in Oak Bay ha- is a better way forward. Uh, we accept the provincial government's goal, and that is to ensure that there's no uh, empty and, and usable uh, um, residential properties. I, I think that's in the best interest of all British Columbia. But I think the way the province has gone about it is, is uh, a little blunt, uh, a little too uh, uh, comprehensive in the sense of who's involved. Give me an example, in, in, uh, certainly here in, in the greater Victoria, we're a smaller community, 18,000 people right next to Victoria. We're kind of a seaside community. Also within the district, uh, within the regional district, is a farming community of uh, Machosan. So this, this is going to apply equally everywhere, even though that communities are very different in their makeup, their socioeconomic makeup, their housing makeup. So we're asking in essence, that local governments be given the power to to apply this, what is essentially a vacancy tax. Exactly. It's called a speculation tax, but that's not really what it is in that sense. It's what you have in Vancouver. It's uh, Vancouver, the city of Vancouver has a vacancy tax. And so far, the reports that I've read seems to be that it's actually working. So, they, at some point, uh, maybe I think it was about two years ago or so, a little more, the province said, well, the city of Vancouver, uh, we will empower them. We will give them the right to impose a vacancy tax. And Vancouver has done that. And the, the, the most recent report I, I read is it looks like Vancouver is going to uh, bring in about $30 million from that vacancy tax, much of which they will plow back into affordable housing. And that's, in essence, what we're asking the province to do. Give us the same power as Vancouver. Why should Victoria be treated any different than Vancouver? Uh, Or, for that matter, Surrey be treated any different than Vancouver? Surrey should be allowed to to make a determination as to whether or not they have a vacancy tax. Is it appropriate for them? The same thing. We're just asking for the same thing for all communities right across British Columbia. Uh, we're local government is closer to the people. We're closer to what the problems are locally. Why shouldn't we uh, have that power? And and we're also suggesting that this uh, vacancy tax empowerment, if I can call it that, the local government not be that money that's raised not be used uh, just to put in the general revenue for roads and and the like, but it be used specifically for uh, non market housing, affordable housing. So. That's a win-win situation. We fully accept that the provincial government's goal 
is to ensure that we don't have these vacant homes everywhere. That's not good for uh, a community. It's not good for Oak Bay. It's not good for Victoria. And certainly it's not good for Vancouver. Uh, So we accept that as a goal. Achieving that goal should be done much more simply, much in the same way they've done Vancouver. Right. But how is a tax like this achieving that goal? Because like you said, if it's bringing in millions of dollars, that means people are paying the tax rather than renting the homes or living in the homes. So the homes are still empty. In fact, the more money you make on these taxes, the more it shows it's not achieving the the, the goal of not having empty homes. You're still having them. You're just having people pay the tax on them. I'm not sure you can make that conclusion yet. Uh, You can conclude that after, uh, after after you see a trend. So we don't know if uh, there was an incentive by when Vancouver brought in their bylaw. They may, there may have been people that could have raised $60 million, but uh, they decided to rent out the house. This is an incentive for people to rent their apartments, their condos, uh, their, uh, their houses. Don't leave them vacant. And uh, I think over time, actually, the goal is not to raise any money from that tax, right? Because you want to ensure that all the houses are occupied, all houses that are livable occupied. Which brings me to another uh, uh, recommendation that we've got is to allow local communities to create their own uh, exemptions as to, because, you know, there are certain circumstances that you don't want to apply. The the provincial government's already talked about some exemptions where a a house is being uh, uh, significant renovations, uh, 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 for uh, for to make it more accessible or make it more usable for the elderly, so we we can we're in a better position, local governments, to understand our own community and what works in our own community, and it also allows us to be more nimble. But in terms of the thirty million, we don't know uh, if uh, if there's a lot of people that said, "Oh, by gosh, I want to avoid that tax. I'm going to rent mine out." But over time. That if if the incentive is working or disincentive, depending on how you, or the angle you're looking at it, this disincentive should should reduce that tax over time. That's the goal. That's a, the 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 goal is to put people into those empty houses. Uh, we've seen uh, similar concerns uh, brought forward uh, in Kelowna and places uh, where a lot of people uh, in the past, anyway, have had second homes or vacation homes. So is that an issue in Oak Bay as well, that there are people who want to have a place, whether it's uh, to visit family, to stay nearby, but don't want to live there full time, but will, would then get swept up in this tax? Well, well here's the irony of, of, of uh, all of that. We really don't know. We're not typically a, uh, a, a kind of a summer residence kind of place, but we don't know uh, how many people have homes here so they can come and, and spend uh, the winter. And uh, maybe they move, they, they, they live in Edmonton or Calgary or Toronto and they want to spend the winter here. We just don't know that. And, and quite frankly, neither does the province. And that's the irony that they're imposing uh, this kind of tax. Really, it, it, it certainly they haven't worked with us to find out what the facts are in Oak Bay or Victoria. They've, they've looked at it at a, at a macro level uh, and a very high level. So, And, and that's, that's the other advantage of having local governments determined because each local government knows what their economic base is and what's important to them. So, uh, and, and the idea would be if, if the government gives us this right, and we hope they certainly do, we hope it's supported at UBCM, then we will, uh, Oak Bay would look into how many homes are empty, why are they empty, 
would a tax uh, change that, uh, that emptiness, if you will? Uh, and so we would then make that decision for our own community, not by at some huge macro level, but much more at a human level, at a community needs level. Uh, and what about the argument that it's that it's private property? It's uh, if somebody has purchased a condo or an apartment or a home and they want it as a vacation home, they don't want to become landlords. So what about the argument that this is government overstepping on people's uh, private property? Well, there, there's always there's always that tension in any of the by- our bylaws are like that. Uh, you can't build a ten story. Uh, uh, home in uh, in Shaughnessy, so that there's always any bylaw that deals with private property brings in that tension between what the the will and the best interests of the community are versus what individual property rights. We don't allow an abattoir to be built in Oak Bay uh, on someone's private property, so we already restrict how that property can be used. So I I, I think that and there has to be a, a fair balance, and I think that in certainly in Kelowna. And I read a lot of the materials coming out of Kelowna and West Kelowna. They've done a great job in, in analyzing this. They feel that they, the, it's out of balance, that the property rights here should take a, a little higher precedent. But, uh, and that's always a matter of debate. And that's all a matter of debate, debate within the community. And that's, that's another advantage of allowing a local community who knows its, uh, uh, its, its community and, and its needs make that to make that balance having it balanced in in the legislature is not the way to go having a balance at the local level is much fairer much and because we bring an understanding as to what the local conditions are our conditions in oak bay are very different than up in port hardy uh, or out in the machosan which is a rural community and we know what they are we should be empowered to make that decision on our own behalf All right, well, we'll be watching what happens at the UBCM and how this uh, unfolds. Uh, Mayor Jensen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, uh, Jill. Thanks for being with us. And as you just heard in that newscast, more news and twists and turns when it comes to Donald Trump. He is the most powerful person in the Trump organization, not named Trump, at the president's side for decades, even rewarded with a star turn on The Apprentice. Replacing George this week is my chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. But we are learning Alan Weisselberg has been cooperating with federal prosecutors investigating the president's longtime attorney and fixer Michael Cohen and hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels and Playboy playmate Karen McDougal. That was ABC News Chief Justice Correspondent Pierre Thomas this morning. So let's bring in our next guest. Jeffrey Myers is a Thompson Rivers University law professor to talk with us about the week that was in Trump News. Professor Myers, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me on, Jill. It's always a pleasure. I don't even know where to begin this morning with this story. What sticks out in your mind as as perhaps what we should be paying the most attention to with what's happening with Donald Trump and his presidency? Well, it's been a big week uh, in the news, not saying a lot, because since Mr. Trump has been president, it's really been, you know, the volume of sort of controversies and uh, newsworthy events that otherwise would be the the biggest single event in any president's uh, tenure they happen at a neck snapping speed so of course this week was even a super accelerated version of that the two events i think that are being most spoken of are really just dots in a larger matrix but they're very symbolic and they and those are that is the uh, conviction 
of former campaign manager Paul Manafort uh, in in federal court, as well as the um, guilty pleas of, um, of former um, um, personal lawyer uh, and so-called fixer Gary Cohen in um, in, in a different courtroom uh, to uh, campaign finance uh, violation laws, which implicate Mr. Trump, that is the president, as what what in the American vernacular is a is a um, an unnamed co-conspirator, unnamed because he's president of the United States, uh, co-conspirator. We know he's a co-conspirator because it, of the obviousness of the way in which the, the guilty plea is entered by, by Michael Cohen. And um, these are very significant moments because the first, the, 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 the Cohen guilty plea are the first things which would actually directly link Mr. Trump to wrongdoing in connection with his becoming president. The Manafort thing, the, it is involving, those are all financial crimes involving hiding assets and avoiding taxes in connection with the political foreign political consulting work, which goes to sort of begin to show the relationship between Russia and the Trump campaign potentially and the debts that we're running there. And we're, but this is, that's only the beginning of that. There's going to be another uh, Manafort trial, which is going to address uh, certain uh, charges which are more closely related to uh, to Mr. Trump in the presidential run. So that's just the beginning. And then Mr. Weisselberg, which, of course, you've been covering, that's uh, Mr. Trump's CFO of the Trump Organization, the person he left his company in the hands of along with his two sons, as well as, yeah, his longtime personal accountant, um, is now has now agreed to cooperate uh, to avoid uh, criminal charges as have just an, a long, an increasingly long list of people who are very close aides to the president. So that's big. I think that those those stories of those of those big moves, um, you know, are, are are significant. And some people are talking about them changing the equation in terms of where we're at with impeachment. And it seems like in uh, in any other scenario, any one of these things would be a huge story. And the fact that we're talking about all of these things together, I think, is it, it just seems so over the top. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, whether you whether this is a strategy or this is just an effect of the kind of madness is, is an open question. But it, it is it, it is the case that this it is a very unusual presidency in that. Well, Mr. Trump's bottom, as they say, is statistical bottom, which is some some people say is around 38 percent, which is quite, is quite high. So it's actually he, he, his core or base is, is basically um, unwilling to look at anything sort of beyond, um, you know, pure propaganda. So the idea that being that even, you know, if a tape comes out with Mr. Trump uttering the N word, that these people would remain supporters. Right. And that, that and there's evidence to suggest that's true, considering the past. But in, in terms of the kinds of scandals that Mr. Uh, Trump has had, in terms of things he said, like that he could walk down Fifth Avenue shooting people and he would still have supporters, the, the, the numbers suggest that that is, in fact, true for his base. So that becomes a very significant thing. And, and in the last election, because of the, the um, intensity of that base and maybe the lack of enthusiasm in the, in the Democratic base, he was able to become president despite not having a numerical majority of the vote. Remember, he had 5 million votes less than Hillary Clinton, but the way that Electoral College works, he was able to become president. So if, if he can, can't lose that no matter what he does, he can just careen from one scandal to another, distracting the media and everybody else and making us numb to it so that there's never really a proper reaction. And that appears to be what's happening. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, impeachment, and there's certainly been talk of that. A lot of that, though, will depend on what happens with the midterm elections and what happens uh, in Congress, though, because as long as the Republicans are in control of that, it's not. It, it doesn't seem realistic that that could be an option. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely right, Jill. You have that exactly right. So that the the, the problem is is that is that. Uh, there, there are different opinions, legal opinions, on whether a president can be indicted. But the Justice Department has the policy, and it's and, it, and it's a dominant belief that he or she cannot be indicted. And the reason is because the founding fathers, when they drafted the Constitution, the idea was that the president would be subject to oversight by the legislative branch, so that they would have the power of impeachment if the president committed what were described as high crimes and misdemeanors, right? And that they would then have a trial on the Senate after they they issued articles of impeachment. They would have a trial on the Senate floor where the president's guilt or innocence was decided on, he could be ejected from office in that way. Um, Right now, Congress is not exercising its oversight because basically they realize that that base, that 38% that I referred to, can um, will affect their ability to get reelected. So that they're, and they've chosen, I think, political um, safety or, or the best, you know, calculated deal for themselves politically over principle. And as a result, they're not doing what some principal Republicans did in the case of Nixon, which was to support, you know, the efforts to get him to resign. Of course, Nixon resigned before impeachment. Um, so, so this is unprincipled. So I think that's bad. I also think that it's important for your listeners to remember that the cabinet, the cabinet, the other members of the executive have it, have at their fingertips uh, the uh, ability to trigger the 25th Amendment on the basis of Mr. Trump's just his erratic behavior, I think, his competence. Um, if they had, if they really believe there was a risk there and they haven't done that. So, you know, if Mr. Trump is an existential risk to sort of like global safety and the, the global order, which I think arguably he is, there's a lot of people who are responsible for not um, taking measures to protect everybody. Have we, have, have they used the 25th amendment before ever? No, the 20, well, the 25th amendment, yes, it has been used before. It was introduced, it was, let me, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, and your listeners will forgive me if I get, if I don't get this exactly right, but um, it was introduced, I think, um, after, um, after the Kennedy assassination, because there was some kind of, there was a bit of a, you know, an uncertainty as to what would happen. Um, and, and it was certainly just like, I know that when <laughs> President George W. Bush underwent a colonoscopy, it was used, I think it was used in connection with, uh, um, Mr. Reagan when he was, uh, he had some either, I think there was an assassination attempt on him. And so what it does, um, you know, is it says that the president lacks capacity for a period of time. Now, this capacity question is, diff- it would be different in this case, it would be a mental capacity question, which, uh, as I've discussed in other forums before, is quite complicated because, um, psychiatrists have, a convention called the Goldwater Rule, which they don't really, they don't they don't diagnose people they haven't examined. That's because many years ago, Barry Goldwater was a candidate for president, was psychoanalyzed by psychiatrists, and it had an effect on people's view. And of course, in psychiatry, you know, or psychology, you can't really um, diagnose somebody. Most psychologists or psychiatrists will tell you unless you have them in front of you and you're able to interview them. Um, so that this is, but th- there's debate about whether that should go forward. Nevertheless, there it's no reason that the so-called grown-ups in the room, you know, the, 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 the General Mattises of the world, uh, the General Kellys of the world, they, they couldn't, um, you know, say that what we can see up close, this guy's erratic, he's not thinking rationally, and, you know, he's not, he doesn't have the capacity. Um, none of them have done that. So I just, I just think it's important to, for us to think about as, as the evidence becomes more and more overwhelming for anybody other than that 38%, 
um, you know, who, who, who is responsible, what measures are available. And there are certain measures available and there are people responsible. Because it does seem like other than perhaps talking about NAFTA and NAFTA and possible deals between the United States and Mexico, if somebody was asked what else was happening in U.S. politics other than scandals and courtroom pleas and guilty findings in in courtrooms, if somebody was to, to ask what else is happening in U.S. politics, I think you might draw a blank. Well, you would say, I mean, it seems to be there is the policy of the Trump administration is kind of a nihilistic policy. So everything that they've done has been to undo whatever Obama did. So um, basically to the point where you put in these cabinet secretaries or people like Ben Carson at the Department of Housing and, uh, you know, and they just basically or, or, or you know, um, you know, um, uh, Ryan Zinke at Department of Interior, whoever it is, to sort of basically eliminate or at the EPA, eliminate any kind of a, a contribution or a positive program that there might be there and just reduce the thing to a nub so that it's not regulating big industries which have paid large uh, campaign dollars. I mean, there's corruption on all levels. At the foreign level, it's just complete chaos and basically an exploitation of like all kinds of very violent, um, you know, potential fault lines. It's, it's, it's a dangerous situation. All right, Jeffrey, we'll have to leave it there, but uh, always good to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, as you know, civic elections are coming up in October, so a good time to take a look at just how much your government is spending, how much money they are taking from you, the taxpayer, and how that might compare to other municipalities and cities and such in uh, Metro Vancouver and in the province. Well, Joseph Filipowicz is joining me on the line now. He's a senior policy analyst with the Fraser Institute, also the co-author of a new report that takes a look at just that. Comparing Municipal Government Finances in Metro Vancouver. Joseph, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Uh, Walk us through exactly what this report looks at as far as uh, the civic governments, which uh, this seems like there's a bit of a disconnect. We always have such low voter turnout, but it is the government as taxpayers we are closest to. Uh, Walk us through what this report looked at as far as civic governments and taxation. Sure. Um, Our study compares 17 of Metro Vancouver's 21 municipalities on several measures, which include uh, government spending, revenue and debt over 10 years. Uh, And as you mentioned, with the local elections just around the corner, uh, we think that the results will be quite interesting for uh, for residents as they consider who their next council is going to be. Um, so what we found was that there's pretty strong variation between uh, municipalities, uh, and in particular uh, between some of the big municipalities in the region, like Surrey and Vancouver. So let's compare those two, because that's what I found uh, quite interesting, is looking at these two big cities. And we often hear that Surrey is going to surpass Vancouver as far as population size. But as, as these two major cities, what are some of the key differences as far as how much people are taxed and what they get in return? Sure. So, uh, so uh, on the spending side, Vancouver actually spent significantly more per resident than than Surrey across the ten years we looked at. Um, and in fact, in, in 2016, um, Vancouver spent 84 percent more per person than Surrey did. Um, now, 
to support all this spending. Obviously, as you mentioned, there's the taxation side. And, and on that side as well, Vancouver, Vancouver um, far out taxed Surrey. So in terms of revenue, tax revenue per person, Vancouver uh, raised about 63% more uh, than Surrey did. So just in, in numbers per person, we're talking $1,100 per person in, uh, in Vancouver versus under 700 in Surrey. So that's a pretty significant difference between two cities that are that are quite large. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, Surrey's rapidly growing. Um, in fact, they added over 100,000 people uh, uh, in the last 10 years. So it's, it's important to see that, um, you know, despite this increase in demand on local services, Surrey has somehow found a way uh, to rein in spending relative to regional peers. And when we say that, or when you say that this is how much the municipality spends per person, are you able to break that down? Are we talking specifically about city services and such, or is it total general spending by the city? Yeah, that's a great question. I gave you the uh, the total number, and we have uh, we have this broken down into categories. Um, so, for example, uh, protective services like uh, like uh, fire and, and police. In that case, Vancouver spends about sixty percent more than Surrey. Um, otherwise, there's also transportation uh, and and parks and recreation, and, um, and and on all these categories, Vancouver spends more. I, I just mentioned parks and rec. Uh, Vancouver spends about twice what Surrey does per person. Um, uh, when it comes to transportation, they spend about four times uh, what Surrey does. So, so we really hope that this kind of gives the lay of the land, so that people, uh, you know, when they consider how how their local government fares, maybe they can uh, they can also consider how regional peers fare, and, and just to uh, to better understand the state of their local government's finances and and and, and how much this is costing them. And I guess where it, where it comes through then is looking at the two cities, so comparing Vancouver and Surrey, in talking to people, if people in Surrey felt that they really weren't getting the services that they wanted or felt that they were being left behind, there would be an issue. But on the flip side of that, if they feel they are getting the services that they need, then they're getting that at a much lower rate, a much lower taxation rate than people in Vancouver. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, the the point of this study is is to really, um, you know, give a lay of the land and start those conversations. Um, so whether people are, you know, believe that they're getting value for their tax dollars is is ultimately up to them, and we hope that this helps them, you know, helps uh, inform that conversation. Um, so, I mean, municipal governments do offer a similar basket of services. I mentioned protective services, you know, garbage collection, sewers, et cetera. So, um, you know, it is interesting in that context to see these enormous differences when, uh, when, when supposedly uh, they're providing fairly similar um, uh, set of services. That being said, you know, there are differences between municipalities and whether people value those differences uh, is ultimately up to them. Uh, the, your study also finds uh, that, uh, and uh, looking up the, for population growth and inflation, factoring that in, uh, City of Langley and Port Coquitlam, the only two that had a reduction in revenue per person over the time that you looked at this. Do we know why or, 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 or how they were able to do that? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really good question. It seems like they spend less on most of these categories than uh, than their their regional peers. And so, um, you know, as you as you mentioned, uh, if people are getting value for their dollars, um, you know, if they feel that the services they're receiving are of are of a, a sufficient quality, then that's really interesting. There might be some uh, some some lessons here for uh, for other cities in the region. Um, so, yeah, that was something that stuck out to us. And and really, uh, you know, we're not digging into the line items of every single municipality, but we really wanted to just show uh, how how each one of these communities fare versus uh, versus uh, their neighbors um, so that 
you know, really th- this could start those conversations or start questions, right? If people want to start asking questions of their local representative um, or dig further into their uh, community's finances. Um, I-, I would just add that we do have uh, individual profiles for each municipality included in the report. So if listeners are interested uh, in knowing more about, about their community, they can certainly find that on the report or sources uh, to find out more. Because it is, and when we talk about services, I mean, that's one arm of this, but I also find it very interesting because you look also at developer fees and taxes that are levied on developers. I mean, housing is top of mind for so many people, and that is something that can have a direct impact on the cost of housing and what people are actually paying. And it's something we don't look at a lot, I think, is the differences between the different cities and municipalities on on the fees that can then be passed down to consumers. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, this is uh, the developer fees are a growing source of revenue. In fact, they're a rapidly growing source of revenue in the region. Uh, they represented a few, less than seven percent of, uh, of, of of regional income. Um, I'm talking about local government incomes across the region in 2007, and, and now it's almost 15 percent. So there was an incredible jump in uh, in, in in that source of revenue, um, and, and this raises questions. Firstly, for affordability, um, and second of all. Um, you know, if, if local governments are overly dependent on one source of revenue, especially one that's attached to something as volatile as the housing market, um, this could certainly give give uh, give pause to citizens as they as they consider the uh, the, the the taxing and spending habits of their local governments. Um, uh, Vancouver and Surrey raise a similar amount of, of money per per person on developer fees uh, at about uh, between three hundred and fifty and four hundred dollars per person. Um, that being said, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Surrey is fast growing, right? They're, they're a way quicker growing municipality than Vancouver. Um, so this is really interesting because if developer fees are, are uh, you know, at least supposed to um, uh, cover the costs of growth, why is it that a slower growing municipality like Vancouver is raising as much as Surrey, which is a far quicker growing municipality that needs those new sewers, needs those new roads that, uh, that supposedly uh, developer fees are supposed to cover? So once again, this raises a lot of questions, and, and we hope that uh, this this report, um, you know, helps inform the discussions that move forward. Uh, where can people go and look up? Because I'm sure people will want to check their own municipality, their own city. Can they go to your website and find that? Absolutely. So, uh, so the report can be found at www.fraserinstitute.org. Um, it is a very large study, so we just talked about a few of the, the communities uh, in our interview today, but there are so many more, uh, and there are so many more nuances that, uh, that, that listeners can, uh, can take a look at. So they can do that. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, www.fraserinstitute.org. Uh, and the, uh, the uh, report is called Comparing Municipal Government Finances in Metro Vancouver. All right, Joseph Filipowicz, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate your time this morning.